Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone, and I'm coming to you live from Macquarie University. And I am here today with the authors of Latinos in American Football, Pathbreakers on the Gridiron, 1927 to the present, out from McFarland this year. In fact, it's so out, I read it on uh, press, on uh, proofs copies, which was great, and I'm looking forward to seeing the book um, in, in its in its uh, physical form because it looks just amazing. And for those of you curious, these authors are Jorge Iber, a professor of history and associate dean for the College of Arts and Sciences at Texas Tech, and Mario Longoria, an educator and a PhD in English in 2014. Welcome both of you to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I I love the book. Um, it it was just a, a fascinating read for me, and I, I I told you beforehand I was a bit ashamed to realize I'd been watching American football for such a long time and hadn't realized the important role that Latinos have played in it uh, throughout my life and and obviously uh, long before. So I'm wondering how you two came to this project. Do you want to go first, Mario? Yes. Uh... Hello, everyone. The, I'm glad uh, to be on board with, with Keith and my, my colleague, uh, Jorge Iber. The, uh, the history of the Latino and professional football is uh, something that's been long, long in coming. The, uh, initially, and, 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 and to take off on, the, on the, the statement that Keith made, that not too many people knew that Latinos had been playing in professional football as far back as the late 1920s. Okay? The, and oftentimes the, uh, the, the, the diversity within the Latino culture in itself is quite extensive. See? Uh, there were, there are some Latinos that have some very, very Spanish sur- surnames, while others have Anglo names or even some Irish or maybe some English names. So it varies. See? And the, because of the times and that, which is a top, a different topic altogether, the, we'll focus on the, the ones that were identifiable, the ones that actually took a lot of pride in the, in their background, but hid it for, for whatever reason at the time because of the situation that, that they were involved in back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and even on to the present. Okay? The, the very first ball player was, uh, his name was Ignacio Saturnino Molinet. There you have what, uh, a Cuban born, a very Spanish surname with a French last name. See? And the question was, well, where did that come from? See, well, that, that can only be told by the, by the person who actually bore the name or had the name for a while. And, but it was quite interesting. Even though his football career was rather brief, it signified the entry of the Latino in a sport that normally was denied him or they were not familiar with. So, you know, those are the things that we cover in the book, how they came to be, some of the obstacles they encountered, and then some of the successes that they that they were actually to accomplish while playing the sport. Now, initially, the the first I think two or three Latinos were basically were immigrants. Okay? That their families were well to do back in the old country and were able to come to the United States, went to finishing schools, and eventually wound up going to some of the Ivy League schools, like Cornell, for example, and did well. You know, that, you know, the, uh, and not only the, and then learning the sport and then mastering it in a short period of time. See, uh, Molinette was, a was a running back who eventually was working on a, on a, I think a mechanical engineering degree, if I'm not mistaken. I can't even remember now. And, uh, and he had also had several brothers that attended Cornell also, but they weren't as successful as he was. And he was actually approached uh, back then before the draft, was approached by one of the, uh, back then was the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets team, which today now is the Philadelphia Eagles. 
And, uh, you know, the little negotiations they had, and it's quite in the book that I, I covered his, uh, the transition he made from college to the pros, which actually involved a negotiating process that was conducted through cable grant, which was quite interesting. But he played only one year in the NFL and was, uh, somewhat successful. But the fact that he broke into the NFL as a, as a, as a Latino back then was unknown. Okay. So then, you know, and from there we start to move on to the others. And 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 to be honest with you, you know, it, although Morinette obviously is the first the first per individual to play in the NFL, one of the things that we did as well was to begin to look at high school and 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 obviously collegiate level uh, sports as well, but, but but primarily high school. And here in Texas, for example, uh, high school football begins in the very very late nineteenth century. And as it begins to spread throughout the state, eventually it goes into places where you have substantial percentages of Spanish surnamed people, El Paso, Laredo, the Rio Grande Valley. And as those high schools begin to play football, now the teams are not going to be prim primarily Latino right at the start of the 20th century, see part of I think what we do here, and 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 Mario Mario has done a lot of research on this as well, is we are looking at not only the athletes playing football and what they mean, but why is it that in say a place like Laredo or a place like El Paso, where you have very large percentage of the Latino population, uh, you don't have a whole lot of football players. Uh, you know, on their high school football teams during these early years of the 20th century. And that spins off into our discussion of the educational issues, the economic disparity that existed in a, in a place like Texas, in a place like California. So, I mean, all that is covered in the book. It's really not just what's happening on the field but sort of a contextualization of what goes on to bring, uh, bringing those individuals onto the field and keeping them on the field. And, the, and those who are successful, what does that mean as far as how Latinos are perceived in a place like Texas, in a place like California, in a place like New Mexico, in a place like uh, uh, Florida? You know, those are a lot of the things that we talk about here, as well as the action on the field and the individual players. Yeah, that's yeah. The book project, in fact, for me was about these two twin things. One, there's this lacuna in the literature that you all are trying to identify, which is why haven't more people been talking about Latinos in football? And also, what are the circumstances in which um, Latinos participated and how did that what kind of challenges did they face that might help explain why they weren't more visible uh, in football's early days and even until the present? So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, kind of how you see yourself fitting in with the broader literature on American football and maybe why this lacuna developed. Why didn't we know, you know so much more about Latinos already in American football? Well, I, I would argue, I would argue that Latinos have been very much overlooked in just the overall literature of uh, of, of, of of American sports. Um, we simply don't exist outside of <coughs> excuse me outside of baseball uh, and and obviously more recently soccer. And I think the reason for that is you know goes back to the point that Mario made. Uh, some of these early pioneers, especially at the at the Ivy League level and at the, at the NFL, a lot of these individuals did not have their last name was not Rodriguez or Sanchez or Perez or something like that. So it, you 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 can overlook a guy like Molinet, uh, even though he he was Cuban, um, and, and I think that that tends to happen uh, a lot. Uh, it, here in Texas, it, again, high school football is an obsession. And for a lot of 
people who know the history of high school football in the state of Texas, uh, they focus on the larger metropolitan areas. They focus on some of the more rural areas, but they very easily or very quickly overlook El Paso, uh, Laredo, the Valley. Uh, you know, one of the Bibles of Texas football is something called Campbell's. Uh, and there's always a discussion uh, of, of Campbell's Texas football at, at the start of the, 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 the issue. They always talk about, uh, well, there's a representative from the El Paso, uh, excuse me, from the Dallas area, from the Houston area, from out here in West Texas. And these guys will argue, well, the best high school football in the state of Texas is played in Dallas. The best high school football is played in Houston, the best high school football is played out here in West Texas. And the one area that they always overlook, no one talks about El Paso, no one talks about Laredo, no one talks about the Valley. So it's that has been, I think, the pattern. Um, and a lot of folks just simply don't realize that there are good athletes everywhere in the state. And there are good athletes who happen to be of Latino or Mexican in, in Texas, obviously, mostly Mexican-American background. I would add to that also the, the race factor. What I was doing, I've been, I've been researching this, uh, this particular, uh, the first book that I did called Athletes Remember, that, that's about 32 years of research. And upon finding some of these players that I had identified, and get this, I identify him not from any of a U.S. literature on football, but it was basically a Canadian football dictionary that listed the Latinos that had played in football since the early 1920s in professional football. Okay, so then I that began the process there of identifying them and then finding them. The district normally took uh, just finding out what colleges they went to, and I would locate them through alumni associations or through some. We're talking to some folks at the, uh, the national football teams or even the colleges, their sports information, talking to some of the older folks that have been there for a while, and they would remember some of the names from yesteryear. And then speaking with them and some of the questions they would ask me, well, why do you want to know about my football history when no one else did? Okay. So, you know, that kind of rem that kind of stayed with me for the longest time. And I said, well, you know, the, uh, and initially they talk about some of the, uh, they were very talented. They were scouted. And then they were asked from, to play, you know, to move from high school to a college and so forth. And then usually they wind up sitting the, right in the bench there for a while for some other marginal player that was not Mexican or had a, a skin pigmentation that was darker than some of the others. And they wouldn't play. See? A bench, apparently, talent would all overcome some of that stuff and they would play. And there's about a handful of players there from back in the, 30, the 40s and 50s who actually are, are as a result of that. They were the much they were ten times the players some of these others were and they finally got the chance. But they had to work well as normally they had to work harder than some of the others to get in. But they were identified. But with some caution there, well he, he's Mexican. Uh, or he's uh, yeah, yeah he's uh, that, that dark you over there, he's Mexican. Those kinds of things. And I'd get that's the information that I documented from some of the players I talked to over the years. Unfortunately, some of those, some of those young, some of those gentlemen have already passed on and so forth, but they were able to share with me some very personal insights of the problems they had to prove themselves to be able to put on a uniform or go out to play. See, and that's, uh, that's basically a, a the, the foundation of why I wanted to find out. And I, and I had identified in that 30 year period over 109 players. They had gone from high school, very school here in South Texas and in, uh, in New Mexico and in Arizona and in California and even up in the Chicago area who eventually got the chance to play and actually but they had to prove themselves two or three times better than some of the others. And then even then they wouldn't get the uh, the recognition they deserved. That normally players would get, you know, when they reach certain uh, certain points in the you know on the on the accomplishment scale and that sort of stuff. That was a problem that I dealt with initially with a lot of the, a lot of the, the research I was doing. So that kind of that in, that actually encouraged me to pursue it a lot more. You know, some of the interviews were some dandies. You know, you know the Alex Bravo, 
asked me, yeah, he said, well, why do you want to know? He said, well, I'm doing some research. You know, I wanted, I want to do a history of the, of the Latino professional football and in college and so forth. He said, well, and the first thing he asked me, okay, why do you really want to do that? Because, and then he told me, and I heard him whisper, say, well, no one else did. Okay. And the thing is, and this young man here at the time, who had gone to, uh, was, uh, he was born in Yuma, Arizona. His name was Alex Alejandro Bravo. Uh, he came from a single parent family. He wound up, uh, uh, at, uh, on a track scholarship to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. He had never played high school football. Always said he had wanted to, but they never gave him a chance. And he was a three time conference player there and he got drafted by the Los Angeles Rams. And his claim to fame was to give an example. He ran down Jim Brown twice from behind on breakaway runs. And I've got the, the Los Angeles uh, Times uh, articles that specify that accomplishment. And then he went up playing. He was uh, one of the first players to, to uh, on the roster for the 1960 Oakland Raiders of the All-American Football League. See, and, and that's just an example of some of the things that have yet to be heard about how these young, how these men, these Latino men, these Latino athletes, or wanted to play a sport that was initially denied them. Okay? It was initially denied them for whatever reason. Usually they were racial. Texas is bad. Is, uh, is, you know, Texas does not have a good history of uh, of, uh, of race relations with Mexico. As far as far as you're concerned, and this is still my, you know, we're in the what, we're in the 2020. This is still very much the case. They just do it differently. They redline you, or they have some little laws and stuff that prevent you from doing things. And the and, and, and to, gotta, to compete, go ahead, Jorge. And and I I I just want to chime in that one of the things that we also uh, inserted into the book is uh, there were some studies that were done in the early 1920s by a guy named Elmer Mitchell, in which he looked at uh, he was a professor at uh, I think if I remember correctly I think he taught at Michigan State, and he talked about the different quote races in the United States and how they uh, participate, how effectively they participated in sport. And one of the things that this particular scholar utilized or, or, or uh, stated, excuse me, about uh, Spanish surname people was they're not particularly bright. So football's a complicated football's a complicated sport. That the, do these folks have the intellectual capability to be able to participate in a sport that is this that is this uh, involved? Additionally, you he also argued that Spanish speaking people, the descendants of the the Spaniards and the descendants of the of the native peoples, were not particularly good sports, and that if they lost or if things did not go their way, they were not able to handle the pressure and able to handle uh, the circumstances of trying to be successful on the football field. In many ways, what what Mitchell was saying in 1921, 1922, mirrors what was being said about the African-Americans who played uh, for Texas Western for you know U- UTEP in the uh, in that national championship game against uh, Kentucky, uh, where you know the 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 scuttlebutt was well you know those African American players are really good athletes, but if you rattle them, if you put pressure on them, if you strategize in the right way. They're not going to be able to respond. Uh, uh, there's a lot of similarities between what was being said in the 1960s to what was being said in the 1920s about about Latinos. Yeah, this is um, for for listeners. This is uh, you're drawing from stuff in your first chapters. So you, organizationally, you you move um, chronologically, and this first chapter is about players from the 20s um, to the, to the 40s. And, and you all have already mentioned some of the stuff you take on both in high schools and, and, um, colleges. And one of the thing that, things that I found most interesting about this chapter is just the diversity of different, uh, Latino players, where they're playing, where they're coming from. And the fact that they're often taking the games back to Mexico or Cuba. And this was all part of this broader 
conversation about the quote unquote civilizational possibilities for sport. So I, I wonder if you all could talk a little bit about you know, these early, early years of the game. Um, we've talked, we've talked about Molide, but how, how did other Latinos break into the game? And was it, was it only through this like, civilizational perspective or how were Latinos kind of even from the very beginning of their participation already asserting their own independence within football? Well, if, if I may, um, the American football comes to Cuba and comes to Mexico uh, in a way that mirrors the way that baseball arrived in those countries. Um, you had uh, American military and economic presence in both of those nations. And you would have Americans playing these sports and trying to present these sports to, uh, you know, primarily the, the upper classes of both, uh, in both Cuba and in, uh, and in Mexico. Additionally, just as would happen with baseball, you had upper class uh, Mexicans and upper class Cubans who sent their sons to the United States to, to, to get their education at, at an American college or work for some enterprise here in the United States. And that was a way that the game was introduced to these particular individuals. And then when they returned to Cuba or to, uh, or to Mexico, they brought the game back with them. And, and I mean, obviously in, in, in Cuba, you have, there, there's actually a, a researcher now at, uh, at the university of Alabama who has done an extensive amount of research on the history of American football in Cuba and the significance of it. And, you know, you have the, the university of Havana, you have some of the elite social clubs playing American football against American universities and against American uh, military teams, um, you know, in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, in Mexico, it goes even further. Mexican universities develop, I guess, really the best way to say it is their own version of the NCAA. And you have college football, you have high school football. Um, and you have these individuals who are playing, uh, some of them are playing actually international competition. Uh, there, there are, Amer there are small American college teams <coughs> that go down to Mexico with a, with a great degree of regularity in the 1920s, 1930s, and they are playing collegiate football against Mexican universities. And, you know, that pattern continues to, to this day. There are Mexican high school football teams. There are Mexican collegiate teams that do come of north, of the, uh, north of the border and are playing against, uh, you know, smaller uh, universities and colleges and actually some, some decent size, you know, some good size uh, high school football teams here in Texas. I believe that there was a team from Mexico not too long ago that came across the border and played against Allen, which is a, a major power uh, in high school football here in Texas. So, I mean, that, that, pattern, that pattern has been around for, for quite a long time. The uh, case in point, there's the uh, Jorge Prieto story. Right. Who, uh, that was a, yeah. His family, during the, during the Mexican Revolution of 1910 to 1920, because his father was politically active in Mexico, he's, he was exiled to the United States, and they wound up living in Los Angeles. And there he saw a, a vision, I guess I was going to call it a vision, where uh, he, was, uh, he was new to the neighborhood, you know, and the neighborhood was mixed, it was diverse. And the, uh, he saw a group of young men, more than likely Anglos, throwing the football around. And this young man visualized the football in some kind of, uh, some kind of, uh, said a vision of some type, that how beautiful it was, how the ball sailed from one hand, and it was caught by someone running, you know, uh, who actually grabbed it and ran with it again. 
And that's how his interest in football began. The story is very well documented in that, in that chapter. And he talks about uh, how he was so intrigued with that and how he wanted to learn. He asked questions. And, of course, he was told the realities of the situation back then in Los Angeles of the 1920s. 19, yeah, late 1910s, 19, early 1920s. But he learned that, oh, is it the, the thing that really got my attention there was when he had mentioned that the person he talked about, well, what if, you know, what if I played high school, or I can get to play on the high school team and I get here and I get and I make the team, will I be able to play college football? You know, already, already being familiar or knowing that they, uh, that uh, from high school you can go on to college and even play at a much higher level. And then he was told, well, no, for, for Mexicans uh, like you, uh, your best bet would be Notre Dame because it's a Catholic university, you know. And, it, and he, this was told to him by a young man who was a student at USC. Okay? But those were the days. And apparently how his interest, he never lost interest in the sport. And he eventually, you know, the, uh, his father eventually returned to, to Mexico after the both the Mexican Revolution and also the Christian Revolt that followed the Mexican Revolution. And he was able to get back into school. And, of course, he taught what he had learned in the United States. And he's become one of the amazing, basically one of the, one of the founders of the sport in Mexico. And he, uh, you know, his story is quite, uh, quite interesting and, and very, uh, say very, uh, very famous from a, from a standpoint that, uh, uh, his love for the game, and then all the other. He also wanted to be, be a doctor, medical doctor, which he eventually became. And he just died recently. And he has he has hospitals and clinics named after him in Chicago. So you know, and that you know, it's a great story. But the very beginning gives you a a, a first hand look from a young man seeing the sport for the first time, and then how that intrigued him, and how that he became to love the game so well that he wanted to not only learn how to play well but also be able to coach and teach others to play. You know, that would be one of the sub-themes of that chapter in the book. Okay. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, the, the, to, to, to push forward a little bit into your next chapter on the 1940s and 50s, um, where you see a kind of, um, uh, kind of steadily, steady moving forward uh, in some ways of, of Latinos in football. Um, I wondered if you all could talk a bit about how this kind of pivotal 40s decade really opened new, seemed to open new doors. And my reading of it is this is where you really see the first kind of Latino coaches, even in places where you have majority Latino populations or at least a large Latino population. So what's going on here in the 40s and 50s that allows for the game to be maybe more democratized? Well, I would, I would go ahead. Go ahead, Marty. Opportunity. The, uh, it opened up a little bit. Uh, some of these young, some of these young Latinos at the time they were in high school played well enough to be able to move into the college ranks and so forth. And here's in the, uh, and here's something that, you know, it's also the start of the, the Latino running back, which is quite interesting for the most part. You hear that was the era where you see the Latino actually at the highest level of football actually playing a skilled position along with everyone else that's in the, on the team. Where he learns and he not only mastered the game, but became very adept at it. Okay. And also, and played well enough to be able to move into the coaching ranks, which some did not own as such. Jorge? Well, I, it, you know, I, I was, I was going to say that exactly what you're saying. Now, obviously, the, the World War II is a pivot, is a pivotal, pivotal moment because at, and again, this is, this is part of the contextualization that we provide in, in the work, which is, as these Latino World War II veterans begin to come back home, their argument is, we have fought for our country, we have sacrificed for our country, now it's, it, it, it's necessary for us to be given the opportunity to benefit 
from the, the system that exists in the United States. So these individuals are going to begin to um, uh, the seek greater opportunities for their for their sons and daughters in high schools throughout Texas and throughout New Mexico and throughout California. And of course, some of these individuals are now going to begin to some of the, the, the sons of these individuals are going to begin to take advantage and they're going to begin to play high school football. They're going to begin to make it to college. Uh, you know, I, I, one of the things that I found particularly intriguing and I, I think just fascinating, and I never really got a, a definitive answer, was this. Uh, the Washington professional football team, as the, as the professional team or the Washington football team, as they're called now, at least for this coming season, um, they had so much problem in bringing in an African-American to play football for them. But they had Joe Aguirre, they had Eddie Saenz, two of the greatest Latino football players in history, both actually played for the Washington no-names. I never got a straight answer from anyone as to was there any concern? Hey, these guys are these these guys are not uh, are not white. Uh, is it okay for us to to have them on the on the team? But you know they they played and they were quite good uh, playing uh, playing for the for the NFL. You also begin to see during this period, Keith, um, the the rise of the Latino Mexican American high school football coach. Uh, one of the guys that I've had a chance to study for, for many, many years is E.C. Lerma and the incredible success that he had in a little town in Duval County called Benavides, Texas. This guy between 1940 and 1954 uh, won several regional championships, won multiple district championships, won multiple uh, uh, district championships. Uh, 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 championships. And he was asked, do, you know, does a Mexican have the, the intellectual capability, going back to El- Elmer Mitchell, does a Mexican have the intellectual capability to be able to coach football? And his response was, well, I guess I showed them. He won titles in basketball. He won titles in track in addition to football. And then he went on to have a very successful career as an educator and an administrator. And he, he, he passed away uh, in the late 1990s. Uh, his son went on to have a very successful career as a high school football coach and administrator as well. So, it, you know, Mario is right. The, the, the 1940s, especially once we get past the war, things begin to open up. And even in the Valley, you have, you know, we, we know that there are a few Mexican-American quarterbacks in schools in McAllen and in Mission and in Edinburgh and some of these other towns, that would have been unthinkable previous to that because, you know, the quarterback is the leader of the team. How can a community's football team have as the face of the team a Mexican-American? That was a very important moment in in places like McAllen. I would I would argue. The uh, you mentioned the uh, okay the war. Here's an example. I'm, you know, it brought to mind the Lupe Joe Arena story. Mm-hmm. He was born in Nebraska. His family his family was uh, was a migrant family from Mexico, Acatecas, if I'm not, if I'm not uh, mistaken. And he grew up and he saw football being played in high school, but he didn't play in high school. Okay. The war broke out. He was with the 27th Marines that landed at Iwo Jima and survived it. He was wounded, but he survived and he came back. But he came back with an attitude that he wanted to play football. And he, sure enough, he went to college on the GI Bill. And sure enough, he wound up playing at the... Uh, the University of Nebraska, there in uh, the town he lived in, in Omaha. Omaha, that's what it was in Omaha. 
And sure enough, he was a quarterback. He was a quarterback. Well, lo and behold, he led the team to a very three three very successful seasons. They weren't playing with any. Were basically they all played an open an open schedule. He wound up getting drafted, I think, in the seventh round by the San Francisco 49ers. And then if you fast forward there, he was no longer a quarterback. He was now a running back. And he eventually, he, when I asked him about it, well, how did that uh, the transition make? He said, well, I wanted a quarterback, but they already had a quarterback established. So he said, uh, but I had speed, you know. And the thing is, and he says, if I could survive the landing at Iwo Jima with the Marines and so forth, then the, 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 I guess the, the physical requirements that are, that are necessary for you to make a college football team is it were nothing as far as I was concerned. So he already had an attitude that he was going to succeed. Well, lo and behold, he did. He was in the backfield with San Francisco 49ers with uh, Y.A. Tittle, uh, Joe, Joe the Jet Perry, and Hugh McElhaney. All those three are Hall of Famers. And he played in the heydays of San Francisco 49ers. He moved back to Texas. He lived down in the, on the coast for a while there. And Joe is still alive. He lives at a rest home there in College Station, which is where Texas A&M is now. And then as part of it, he also wound up coaching wide receivers at University of Houston for a while. So they are, his story is quite unique in terms of And he was also one of the running backs. He, he has a, an NFL uh, title for the, the most uh, kickoff or Kickoff return yardage for a year, I think, in '53. So the that was, you know, and then that followed suit. There was John Sanchez, a Marine who served in in Guadalcanal and New Guadalcanal, who was a little All-American in 1945. He left college in Orange, San Francisco, to fight in the war. Came back and returned to football. Became an all a little all American at University of San Francisco and went up playing with the Washington Redskins, the uh, New York Giants, and the Detroit Lions. When I finally interviewed him years later, he was in a wheelchair. Here you have a a very large Mexican. He was like six five, six four, and he was a Mexican with red hair. And his real name, the way he said, that my real name is Juan Claudio Sanchez. And he was born in Mexico. And he had been recruited to USC when he was in college, but he decided to go to the University of San Francisco. Another story there, and he talked about, he said, well, he said, uh, I, didn't, I didn't see too much of that stuff because I was very light-skinned. I had red hair, so they misunderstood me. See? And the, uh, they did, you know, they weren't able to, to actually figure who I was, but because I was, uh, I was bigger and stronger than most of them there, I got away with that stuff. So he survived. And then he passed away some time ago. And uh, get this, it was real interesting. He was finally inducted into the school's Hall of Fame several years prior to his death. So, you know, those are the stories there that uh, people need to know about. Absolutely. Before that, along with all the other things that pertain to what goes along with the sport, the coaching, the recruitment, the the playing, the uh, and the desire to play are all very important factors. What if you were going to say something? No, 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 I'm, I'm fine. Uh, I, I was going to jump in, actually, because um, what you're saying, Mario, makes me think of in the next chapter of your book, mm-hmm. which um, really brings football into conversation with um, a kind of growing sense of Latino politics and liberation. And so I was wondering if you all could talk a bit about about what's going on, like 1950 to 1970. You call it the the McCarthy era and the age of activism. So how how is Latino football fitting into that? And there were some really, I mean, I, I want to hear more of these stories because there's some really fascinating um, stories about the, some of the gains that were achieved, but also just continual obstacles. And one of the things that killed me was the number of times people were penalized just for speaking Spanish on the field or something like that. You can't imagine that today. Hopefully, I don't. I haven't lived down in Texas. But, well, I personally, uh, I went to a segregated high school. Okay? We didn't play any white teams until after 1964, when they passed the civil rights legislation. And then when we did, they were very poor sports. Okay, so you know the, the, that that I've lived with the rest of my life. And then also, they, and also that was, uh, during the time we go to town, there was separate waterfalls. We also at times we instead of going into the theater like everybody else. We went uh, through the colored balcony. We sat with the blacks up in the uh, up in the uh, up in the by the roof and the area up there. 
that's where stuff's with me. I'm a, I'm a product of that environment there, so I take this stuff very, uh, very seriously. And you know, uh, I, I would, I would argue that I mean that chapter has a lot of really great stories, yeah. but you know, I'm particular. I, I, I did, a, I did a, an article about only cow. It's been almost 20 years now. Uh, on the 1961 Donald Redskins. Oh, wow, wow. Uh, it's the only team from the Valley ever to win the state title in high school football. And the story is still, I mean, it still resonates nearly 60 years later. It still resonates in that part of the state of Texas because these individuals face a challenge that very few teams have, have had to face, which is you know, they, they, I, I remember that one of the, um, one of the players, uh, telling me that a coach from another team in a playoff game said, can these pepper bellies play? You never hear of these guys in the Southwest conference. Well, you know, this team went out and won the state title. Uh, they did it in very dramatic fashion. They were losing 21 to 12 late in the fourth quarter. They scored a touchdown added the two-point conversion, then they got the ball back and they scored the winning touchdown to win 28 to 21. And if you if you look at that portion of this chapter, again, what we try to do is to contextualize what does this mean to Mexican Americans at the cusp of what will become the Chicano movement. Uh, we argue that this gives many people in this region a sense of possibilities, a sense that we can achieve whatever we set our mind to. And one of the players actually tells me a beautiful story. And you, you guys know that we historians live for these type of stories. Um, He's he's at the he's at the local post office. This is in like the late 1990s or very early 2000s. And he's at the post office and this older gentleman runs into him and says, hey, are you so and so of the of the of the Redskins, the 61 Redskins? And he says, yes, I am. And this gentleman turns to his wife and says, this is one of the brothers who played on that team when we showed the gringos that we too could play football. To me, that is just such a powerful statement about what being successful in on the football field, what that means, not just to the players and to their families, but to the broader community, many of whom have been told, as Mario uh, indicated, you know, you're not good enough. You're supposed to be in the segregated part of town. You're supposed to be in, not in the, in the lower balcony of the movie theater with the white folks. You're supposed to be up here, uh, with the, uh, with the, uh, with the African Americans. That is the power of these stories. And we were very fortunate to be able to get a lot of stories along those lines for this particular chapter. In addition to that, uh, in back, and then a year later, in 1962, there was a team from San Antonio, the Bracket Ridge Eagles, comprised mm -hmm. of half Mexicans and half blacks, coach, a white coach. And there were, I think there was two Latino assistant coaches who wound up winning the, the top, back then it was 16-4A, which is the top level of high school football in San Antonio, and they won the state championship. But then, but during the process, the, the they were not given hotel accommodations. They had to eat outside or go to the back to get at the restaurants and so forth. And but they survived all that. Why? Because they wanted to play football and they were good at it. Okay? And their stories the same way. He said, "Yeah." He said, "Look, we finally we finally were given." He said, "One of them said, well, we finally had the chance to beat these guys.'" Yeah, the, I, had, I had underlined here in my list of questions the Breckenridge Eagles. That um, account was particularly, I think, uh, moving for me. Like, oh my goodness, the, the, every step of the way, they seem to face obstacles that nobody else would have had to face. Yeah, nobody else would have had the same problem. 
And then there's a still, it's still about nine of them that are still alive that get together for breakfast at least once a month in a local Mexican restaurant in San Antonio. They still get together and, uh, and I guess the friendship that, the lifelong friendship that lasts between them and the bond of them having, uh, having been state champions in an era where that was basically unknown or never believed to happen. And then not only did they beat them, but they beat them well. They played a good game of football. Of course, their, their coach, Weldon Forum, was an excellent coach. He was very good. And the uh, and all they needed to do was just learn and repeat and practice and drill, 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 and they won. So your next chapter um, concerns the, the decades from 1970 to the, to the 1990s. And it... Part of this chapter is it's being um, being given the backbone of this the census that Hispanic is now appearing in in the census and maybe there's some kind of greater recognition of of this uh, broader uh, community and a, and a much in some ways more diverse community because we start the book mostly Mexican and um, and Cuban and by the time we get to the 70s it's just a, a, a much uh, broader range so I wonder if you all could talk about What's going on in this in this chapter? How, how is this diversification playing out in, in kind of the Latino community? And then also new successes too. Like uh, I was amazed to read about uh, Joseph Cap and things like that. So well, uh, I I gotta I gotta tell you something. Uh, you know, I, I I'm Cuban. I grew up in in Little Havana. When my family got here in the late 1960s, um, you know. I, I began, we, we lived five blocks from the Orange Bowl. So, so I, I, I was, I, I knew that the Dolphins were there and, and, and I knew that there was a, there was a sport called football. I never really, you know, never really understood it. And, and I remember uh, uh, telling, telling my dad, you know, watching the Dolphins game on television and telling my dad, well, you know, you're supposed to move the ball across the goal line and that's how you score. Uh, but I, the thing that got me confused was the down, down and distance. I, it, t- it took me a while to figure to figure that out. But I, I got to tell you, you know, it, it, growing up in South Florida, uh, Carlos Alvarez and Ralph Ortega. Carlos Carlos Alvarez with uh, with the University of Florida, and, and and the same thing with Ralph Ortega. Uh, I, I I remember just sort of saying to myself, "Wait a minute." These guys are Cuban. These guys are playing in major, you know, obviously major college football. They're playing. They're playing in the Southeast Conference. What is it about this sport? And, and I, I, be, you know, I was never very good at football. Um, and, and you know, I'm, I'm, I, I just really fell in love with the story of the game and the significance of the game. And I think that what we, what we try to do in this chapter is to give people a sense that. The civil rights movement, uh, the Chicano movement, opened doors to many Mexican Americans, and, and we talk about these folks in New Mexico and in California, and, and, and obviously here in Texas. But you're beginning to see a sprinkling of these individuals playing collegiate football, making it to the NFL. I mean, obviously within this frame, the framework of this chapter. Uh, the guy that that is, you know, head and shoulders above the rest uh, is uh, is the great Anthony Munoz, who is you know one of the greatest, if not the greatest, offensive lineman in the history of collegiate football and the in the history of the NFL. What do these individuals mean? I understand what Alvarez and Ortega meant to me, and what we try to relate is. What does an Anthony Munoz, Danny Villanueva, uh, what do these individuals mean to George Myra? What do these individuals mean to the broader community? Again, it's not just what's happening on the field and the story of the football players, but it's the, the broader contextualization of the significance of sport. The 70s was also a period of awakening. You know, here you have now Latinos are actually being recruited to college. For the example of Joe Cap, along with Ortega and along with Alvarez, the and Cap was recruited by Berkeley, University of California at Berkeley, but he was not recruited to play football. He was recruited to play 
basketball. But he wanted to play football because he had he he, he was on a very good high school team out of New Hall, California. Okay? So he finally got the chance, and of course he took him to the to the uh, what's that bowl? The Rose Bowl. Yeah, the Rose Bowl. Took him to the Rose Bowl, and then he got drafted, and he played in Canada for a while. Eventually, he made his way back to the United States. He was a very colorful character, and he's the one that never lost sight of his identity. That's the one thing that remains constant with Joe Cap was it. Cap yeah. is a German last name. His mother's maiden name was Garcia. Okay? And he always referred to himself as a Chicano. Okay? And he got a he had a he had a he got a degree from Berkeley. He could he could teach and so forth. He went to he went back to coach Berkeley for a few years there and turned the program around there for a couple of years and then eventually just kinda faded away, so to speak. See? And then there's another example there of uh of, of wanting, of, of taking advantage of the situation now and also in producing, you know. You know you have to do well in school. You know you have to present yourself well regardless of who you are. And when you get a chance to play, you need to give it 150%. Okay? That was, as it seems to me, with Cap and some of the others from his uh, this particular decade had that mentality. I mean, Tom, Tom, Flores, is, Tom Flores is another great example of that. Presented to me. Okay. And I was saying, I was saying that you know, in the same generation, Tom Flores, the the great uh, the great head coach of the uh, of the Oakland Raiders and the uh, and the Seattle Seahawks, uh, who I would argue deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, he has won uh, two Super Bowls as as a coach. Uh, you know, it's it's very and I mean no disrespect to Tony Dungy because he is a fabulous man and a fabulous coach. But when the argument is made that Tony Dungy needs to be in, needed to be in the Hall of Fame, and deservedly so, but he is an African-American who won a Super Bowl. Why is Tom Flores a Mexican-American who won two Super Bowls, by the way, with a Mexican-American quarterback both times, Jim Plunkett, why is he not worthy of inclusion in the Super Bowl, in the, uh, in the Hall of Fame. So, I, I mean, I, you know, we try to tease all those ideas out and give people something to think about. Again, it's not just about what's happening on the field. It is the broader contextualization. I, I think that this book does what good, solid, academic sports history is supposed to do. It tells the story of an athlete, of athletes. It talks about their success. It talks about what they accomplished. But at the same time, it asks broader social historical questions. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, for me, it, it was um, extremely illuminating in terms of situating this history within the history of the Chicano movement in the, in the final two chapters, but also in this, this discussion of the racialization of Latino athletes. Um, at the be- at the beginning of the book, uh, uh, I, you know, it's funny. Uh, a European historian, but from the U.S., I didn't know very much about this history, and I, I feel like I learned a lot. This chapter, for me, I think, uh, and why I mentioned Cap myself, I, I, I really liked this kind of overlapping of identities, and it wasn't just um, it wasn't just a kind of he wasn't just a Latino player, but he was also a player, and he was always conscious of his Latino identity, but also always fighting for his identity as a, as a player who had working rights. And so all of these things kind of overlapping each other in meaning in a meaningful way. I should mention for readers um, that there's kind of some interesting structure to your book too, with all of this, this kind of contextualization at the beginning of chapters, but then at the end kind of players as, as almost case studies is that, was that an intentional Kind of writing strategy, or absolutely, absolutely. You know, going back to one of the points that Mario brought up much earlier in our discussion, uh, athletes remembered. I, I, you know, I graduated uh, with my PhD in 1997, and I remember one of the first books that I came across when I got here to Tech was athletes. Uh, athletes remembered. And I said to myself, holy smokes, this is great stuff. There is, There are wonderful stories here that need to be looked at, not only at these individuals who are playing at the collegiate level, but at the, at the, high, at the professional level, but at the high school level. 
And that sort of began my path towards looking at high school football here in Texas. But, you know, you, you were, Keith, you were talking about sort of the relationship that Mario and I have had. Well, uh, I got in touch. I sent Mario an email. I don't know when it was. It might have been like 2000 or something like that. And I said, hi, I'm so-and-so. And, you know, I read your book and I love your book. And, and you know, we kept in touch over the intervening, whatever it was, right, Mario, 15, 14, 16 years, something like that. And we finally, you know, when, when Mario retired from the Forest Service, uh, I, I said, well, okay, now that you're retired and now that I've done all this other research in high school and we've got to bring our, um, our, our work together and bring this book, your book, from 1997 up to date. And that's, that was really the purpose. So Mario, to make a long story short, Mario had all these awesome stories and, you know, we, we worked it out in such a way that we could provide extensive coverage of these individual players that Mario, many of whom Mario was able to interview before they passed. And we've got, we had to flesh out those stories as examples of what we were talking about in the, in the earlier part of the chapter. Yeah, that absolutely came through and, and worked really well. I'm conscious of our time. I, I wanted to ask you all kind of two final questions. I'm hoping you both will, will, um, will answer them. The, 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 the first is that your last chapter deals with uh, Latinos in football from 1990 to the present. And I'm wondering if you can just give us uh, an update on what the status of Latinos in the game is. And then the final question is the same final question for uh, every uh, interview, which is, do you have any next projects that we can look forward to? So I want to, I want a little conscious of the time. I want to give you both time to answer those questions if you want. Well, go, why'd you go ahead, Mario? Briefly, the, uh, <clears throat> one of the things that, that crossed my mind when we were working on the last chapter was that, okay, this is not a, a, uh, a finale. You know, this is just a beginning. The, a lot of, uh, I shouldn't say, a lot of roads have been made into the uh, into the the process of of football from the high school level, or even from the from the pee wee to the to the high school and then into college and professional football. It's a journey, okay? and the journey is oftentimes wrought with a lot of obstacles, particularly for Mexicanos. Although some of them seem to have been maybe set aside, so they're not as practiced as much, but they all haven't gone away. Okay? Now, when you talk to some of the, for example, talking to, uh, to, uh, no, I didn't talk with, uh, Ron Rivera. I think we exchanged an email and I asked him a few questions and he, he, you know, he wasn't very committed to, uh, to his coaching position. He says, yeah, he says, it's been a long road. It's been a real long road. And the, you know, I've, you know, I've enjoyed the playing field, but it's off the playing field that sometimes presents some problems because he still gets asked very poignant questions regarding his, his ethnic background and how he sees things on, you know, on, the, on, the, on the football field and that sort of stuff. He's a very talented individual and he's also very good at answering questions. You know, I said, well, you're the model. You know, you're the model. You know, don't change anything what you're doing now. Continue to do that. You know, and they're going to continue to ask you questions like that because of who you are or who they perceive you to be. Okay? But he said, you know, don't change anything. Same thing with Flores. I'm Flores. You know, he's a very intelligent man, very quiet, keeps to himself and so forth, very unassuming. But he's, uh, he's a leader. They got, you know, leadership abilities seem to be gained from dedicating yourself to sports. You're not only learning, you mastered, now you want to teach. You know? And that's where the coaches come in. You know? So those are the kinds of things that, that you know, that, that's where we're headed now. The, I'm looking to see there's not as many. The Americanos and Latinos as a whole are not primarily recruited unless you're just a, a what a, a top athlete, you know. What I'm seeing now is that the, the smaller colleges, they are being yeah. recruited to play. Yeah. And some are being and, very successful. What if you had and, and, in, in, in one of the areas? And, and if I could, if I could jump in, if I could jump in there, Mario, I think one of the one of the things that we do point out, and, and we focus specifically on El Paso because they have they have a 
a, a process that they put together to try to get some of their players from El Paso some notoriety so that they can wind up getting some scholarship uh, offers. But, you know, there, there are a few who do go on to play major college football. But what we've noticed is incarnate word in San Antonio, uh, Texas A&M Kingsville, uh, you know, some of these smaller schools, FCS, you know, Division Two, Division Three, these schools are giving some of these Latino players an opportunity to play at the collegiate level. So we're building something here. Look, there will always be great athletes. Um, the name of the, uh, the quarterback at the University of Colorado, who is actually from El Paso, I believe it's Cortez is his last name, or Montes. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's few, they're few and far between who are playing at the absolute division one top elite levels. But if you go down to these lower levels, you will see individuals with the last name of Ramirez, Sanchez, Torres, Perez, Dominguez playing at these smaller schools. And, you know, from my perspective, these kids are getting an opportunity to play football. And they're also getting an opportunity to get an education that maybe might not have been available to them if it were not for what they did on the football field. So I think that that's a very important part of this story. And we do emphasize that, I think, uh, quite a bit in that last chapter. And then I think recently I did a a survey of the uh, Latinos playing at university here at uh, Texas colleges. And the interesting thing goes along with what I was saying. I found oh, 107 Latinos on the six on the rosters of six Texas junior colleges listed on football and such. Just you know, which is remarkable compared to say maybe 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. So, but the the more the emphasis, all of the 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 primary emphasis is on being successful in athletics. More important than that is the fact that they're going to get an education that can help them not only realize potential as an athlete, but also that's important. And, and Keith, if, if I may, a couple a couple other things that I think we need to flesh out from from chapter the, this last chapter. Latinos are now everywhere. You go, you know, one of the things that we point out is you go to certain communities in Georgia, the football team is thirty to forty percent Latino. You go to certain communities in Arkansas, the football team is 30 to 40 percent Latino. And in a place like Arkansas, it's actually even more mixed. It's there's Guatemalans, there's Salvadorans, there's Mexicans, there's Mexican-American. So we are now the largest minority in the United States. Latinos are everywhere. Um, you know, we've been, we've been experiencing these issues in Kenosha the last few days. And one of the first things that I remember one of the reporters saying is, well, there's a very good sized Latino community in Kenosha, not exactly the first place that you think of when they're, when you're talking about Spanish surname people, Kenosha, Wisconsin, but you go to Garfield, uh, Garfield, Arkansas, you go to different places, Dalton, Georgia. You go to some of these different places and you see the Latino presence in those schools, in those communities, and more and more on the football field. So that's, I mean, that's really, I guess if we had to summarize that final chapter, um, we're everywhere. We are playing football. We are part of the United States. We're part of American life. and. Football is helping to break down barriers. You know, some of these barriers that Mario and I talked about being in place for most of the 20th, if not all of the 20th century, a lot of those barriers are now being broken down. And football, I think, is playing a part in that. I agree. Great. If I I may say just one last thing, Um, you asked about uh, subsequent projects. Uh, I got to I got to throw this out because I I do work at Texas Tech. 
Uh, I just finished writing the biography of one of the greatest football players in the history of Texas Tech University, Gabe Rivera, who played, uh, you know, was an All-American here, uh, number one draft pick of the Pittsburgh Steelers in 1983, and unfortunately had a a terrible automobile accident uh, shortly after he started his rookie year. Uh, That hopefully will be out in time for the football season. Uh, of 2021 here at Texas Tech. Well, we'll be looking forward to it. Uh, we've been speaking today with Jorge Iber and Mario Longoria, uh, the authors of just a fascinating book about uh, Latinos in American football. That's the title, Latinos in American Football, Pathbreakers on the Gridiron, 1927 through the present. Thank you both for joining me. Steve, can I ask one thing before we, 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 uh, we sign off? The early Washington Redskins, okay. A trivia question, if I might add, I may add, the, 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 NFL, the only NFL team that, the NFL team that has drafted the most Latinos over the years has been the Washington Redskins hmm. over the years since the 1930s and well, since the 40s. That's kind of interesting. Right. Someone asked me that the other day and I happened to know, I just happened to, have that information in mind, and they couldn't believe it. You know, the uh, Griffith, which was the owner of the Washington Redskins back then, was uh, was a very uh, a lone white, was a very well known white supremacist. And the uh, the Latinos that were there, of course, Cap and some of the other ones that stayed there for a while and played very heady science, for example, was quite interesting. So just uh, as a final point, as a final note, that is very interesting. Um, we will all add it to our trivia. Um, Just to repeat again, uh, at the end, for those who are listening, thank you for listening. We've been speaking with Jorge Iber. He's a professor of history and the associate dean at the College of Arts and Sciences at Texas Tech, and Mario Longoria, an educator, an author, uh, PhD in 2014 in English. They're the uh, joint authors of a book that everyone should read, uh, especially if you're interested in American football called Latinos in American Football, Pathbreakers on the Gridiron, 1927 to the Present, up from McFarland in 2020. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Keith, for the opportunity.